today on CityCast Chicago. Cabrini Green on the near north side was one of Chicago's largest public housing developments that thousands of black Chicagoans called home. But decades of segregation, mismanagement, and disinvestment created one of the most infamous and impoverished neighborhoods in the city. But Cabrini Green also sat on some of the most lucrative land. It was only a matter of time until the city came for it, and that is exactly what happened. We talk with reporter Natalie Moore and former Cabrini Green resident and housing activist J.R. Fleming. It's Thursday, January 27th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. The Better Government Association's investigation, Cabrini Green, A History of Broken Promises, looks at what's happened to the former residents of the housing development after the city demolished the last high rise in 2011. WBEZ's Natalie Moore contributed to that investigation and covers housing in Chicago. The story of uh, Cabrini Green goes back to the the 1940s when the Cabrini Row houses uh, originally went up. Prior to that, that neighborhood was at one point Irish, then German, then Swedish, and then Italians. And then after World War II, uh, it became uh, primarily an all-black neighborhood. Um, can you kind of give me a, a little bit of that history? How did the neighborhood shift uh, from Italian immigrants to largely black immigrants during that time? As you noted, there were other immigrants who were there and it was a slum. Um, and so then you had Italian immigrants and the area was called Little Sicily, but it was also called Little Hell because of the smokestacks, the crime. So when the CHA is deciding on where to put these public housing units, many of them end up in the Black Belt on the south side, uh, but they also choose to erect um, these high rises um, where the Cabrini row houses were. Uh, Can you tell me how does that, you know, immediately have an impact on the neighborhood? There was such a need for housing for Black people in the city and for low-income Black people. And we know that a lot of white immigrants end up kind of moving out of one class to another when you have, you know, one ethnic group come in and maybe they're immigrants, low income, they move out and then there's another group to replace them. That doesn't really happen in black communities. By the time you get to the 60s, you've got 23 high rise towers. At the time, it was the largest public housing site in the city of Chicago. Like, what was the goal of the CHA in building these high rises? We have to discuss this, I think, within the context of CHA housing in general. And we can't always focus on the architecture as the problem. And so you and I probably grew up hearing things like, oh my gosh, you're stacking Black people up against each other one by one. This is what happens when you live in high rises. Well, high rises are not inherently bad. Look on Lakeshore Drive. Yeah, rich folks live in high rises all the time. And if I take it a step farther, look at New York, where they have tons of high rises, including public housing. So the architecture isn't the problem. It's the upkeep and the maintenance of the buildings that become the problem. And then the ensuing isolation that happens around. So, you know, what I, I remember... You know, friends would come to Chicago and everybody knows about Cabrini. 
you know, between Good Times, Cooley High, it's in the imagination. People were shocked that it was on the north side. And then it was, but it was this isolated sea, despite being, you know, an arm's length from high income households. So high rises in general seem to bring a promise of, you know, like moving on up. The city invested $26 million in the first set of Cabrini extensions, which were the Cabrini Towers. Then the William Green Homes was the $17 million project um, that finished up in 1961. Like these are multi-million dollar investments. Did the city immediately sort of pull out when it comes to like upkeep and maintenance or was it a slow progression? So one of the things that happened is the housing went from housing the working poor to the poorest of the poor. And housing the poorest of the poor meant that you're going to get less rent. Bradford Hunt wrote a really good book called The Blueprint for Disaster about Chicago public housing. And one of the things that he talked about was the social fabric that was there, that there were too many children and not enough adults. Now, this isn't a slight on saying people had too many kids, but kids break shit and kids break elevators. <laughs> and that was really illuminating to to think about how these sites became run down and there wasn't the investment that was brought in from, from the city. And you can understand, well, let's house the, the poorest of the poor, but racial and economic segregation is is not good. And then you have these islands of hyper segregation and isolation. By 1969, a federal judge had ruled that uh, CHA was discriminatory and where it chose to put public housing. And when uh, the federal government told him you need to build new public housing developments near and in white communities, Chicago said, well, I'm just not going to build shit. I'm, I'm going to stop. And as we're looking at the 70s and the 80s move on, this very much feels like a, a social experiment to continue to disenfranchise uh, black folks. Do you see throughout the, the 70s and 80s how even the Chicago media use like things of violence and drugs to, to really rally the city to, to tear these places down? Well, I even want to go a, a little farther back to something that you said about where public housing was built. And Mayor Daley decided where they were going to be. And white aldermen did not want this housing in their wards. So we can't overlook that. You know, the 70s, you know, the 80s are rough on Black America. Reaganomics, drugs coming in more guns. And these were tough places to live. No doubt. In my experience, you talk to people who grew up in public housing and they tend to talk about it as a good place. And they, they may mention some of the negatives that, that happened, but these were places that it was, these were their homes. And so you have fond memories of homes and there is a different co social cohesion that I have found in public housing that's not in other kinds of neighborhoods. It was a sense of community. I always tell people, you hear people say it was a sense of community, like it was a city within a city. It actually was, right? 
it actually was that network of mothers and fathers who looked out for each other, right? If, if a young lady had multiple children and she was going in labor, the neighbors would watch the children. If somebody had a job interview, the neighbors would watch the children again. We learned this from the generation before us. If you didn't, if you didn't have food in your house, and we tell this joke, right? Everybody's like, it's not a joke. You can go from the 10th floor of our building to the first floor and you can ask your neighbors for food. And by the time you get to your house, you have groceries, right? That'll last you for a week or two, right? That's Willie J.R. Fleming. J.R. grew up in Cabrini in the late 70s and 1980s. He's now a housing activist still fighting for residents who used to live at Cabrini. More of JR's story in a minute. We'll be right back. JR Fleming's father lived in Cabrini, but for a short period, JR moved with his mother to the south suburbs. He came back to Cabrini in the 1980s as a teenager. How is it a, a different environment than what you, you know, maybe remember on those weekend visits to see Pops? I mean, so gunshots, right? <laughs> now, now I'm 16, right? Gunshots, right? You see number of black folks, right? And remember, I'm just coming from the suburb where, I, it's, a, where it's a scarcity of black folks, right? And then, like, when you get to the hood, you go, wow, from Lincoln Park to Cabrini, there's a stark contrast, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, you see all these white folks by Halstead, up there by DePaul, and then you get back to the hood, number of black folks, and you, you go, wow. Same thing when we would cross LaSalle. Moody Bible used to be the divide line, right, where, where, where white people used to feel safe. They're like, they wouldn't go past, they wouldn't go west of LaSalle Street. Let me just say that, right? They had their borders, right? And even when I first got over there, you know, um, we had, like, different programs. I take my hat off to the man and woman, my oldest and elders for the services and program they provided us without assistance most of the time from the government or foundations, right? I would say that particular group of women, the first generation who grew up over there, knew how to take care of a community. While you were ex- experiencing that community and living it firsthand, the rest of the nation was, was turning its back on public housing. People were talking about public housing as a as a, as a failed project. People say so many bad things about Cabrini. They don't make no sense. They think people scared. I be, I be, I usually be ashamed to say where I come from because they saying so many bad things about it. When did you realize how the outside world talked about Cabrini Green? When I realized that like the world didn't like us, I would say it was about 1990, 91, right? Like they're not taking care of the building anymore. You follow me? Now the elevators are always broke. This is when we termed our, our de facto evictions, right? You know what I'm saying? De facto displacement. Like, although the court said you can't force me to move nobody, if I don't take care of the elevator, right? If I don't let the heat go past 73 in the winter, right? Or 74 in the winter. It ain't cold in there. It just ain't warm. You feel me? Um, if I can create these conditions of uncomfortableness, then people will voluntarily begin to move out of You know, and then by the time Dontrell Davis get hit up, you know, and, and get murdered. It was a wrap. Like, we knew then. Like, when Dontrell Davis died, we knew it was over. We we knew, we knew, we knew. In 1992, there's what's known as the shot that tore down Cabrini. 
There was a little boy named Dantrell Davis. Seven-year-old Dantrell Davis was shot in the head as he walked hand-in-hand hand with his mother across the parking lot from his building to Jenner School. Senkwe's mother and other mothers at Cabrini now shudder when they send their children off to school. Yeah, I pray every morning, you know, before they get ready to go to school, like we get on our knees and we pray. He was killed by a bullet from a sniper who was aiming for a member of a rival gang. There was a citywide gang truce after Dantrell's death, but his death is considered the spark that began dismantling Cabrini. This was a huge story in the in the city. Um, and it was, you know what, we gotta tear these down. You know, someone with a sniper on, a, on one of these high rises did this. We have to change this. Daly and Chicago Housing Authority Chief Vince Lane vowed to take back Cabrini Green from the shooters, the snipers, and the gangs. And it's almost to be declaring a war. That's where we are, really. Declaring a war against the gang dealers and, and drug dealers and gang bangers in our city and our nation. We have to. We have a war here. And we have to go after them the same way they go after innocent people. So that is the beginning of what happened. Uh, I believe Vincent Lane, the, the CHA head who was black, who was outraged by Dantrell's death. Um, you know, I don't get into what's in people's hearts and minds, but I certainly understand that that kind of tragedy makes people want to respond swiftly and with something dramatic. It seemed like all the pieces have been laying over 25, 30 years of disinvestment, letting the buildings fall into disrepair, letting people fall into cycles of poverty and violence. There was this clear sense when I was talking with JR that in the community, people knew there was only a matter of time until, as he said, Chicago comes and takes this land. And in 1995, the city starts demolishing some of the Cabrini residents, but doesn't really have a clear plan at that point of what will replace those buildings. But the next year, Mayor Richard M. Daly announces the city's plan to bring mixed income housing. Uh, how is that exactly being communicated to the people who live in Cabrini Green at the time? A lot of contested public meetings where residents said, we don't trust you. And CHA said, no, it's going to be fine. You all put the heart before the horse. You should have came to this community before you broke one ground, before you knocked down one brick. You should have came to this community to find out what we want. Not bring something from the mayor's office or what you all want. We have something to be in this thing too. We want to be here. If you interrupt me while I'm in the middle of what I'm talking about, you won't hear what I'm saying. You interrupted a way of life over here, man. Okay, so there was a verbal communication, a media communication that this is what it is. We're not doing nothing else over here. These buildings are coming down, whether you like it or not. Our community began to organize. When I tell you, like, when you say people fear gangbanging, nobody feared nobody like we did the women of public housing, the leaders, right? Your, your Cora Morris, Marion Staff, Carol Steele, Lillian Smoke, Mr. Taylor and them, right? That original group of fighters 
because they already knew the tricks. So the first thing that happened, they cut the staff for the maidens, right? Then they cut like the landscaping staff, right? So now you end up keeping the grounds, right? Then they start sneaking vouchers to people, like look over here, look, look, go, look, go, look, go look at this house over here. Like you can move now. You don't have to wait till your building come down. So we started watching a population drop. You know, like Jacoby, if you used to seeing like 30,000 people, right? And then one building come down, you go, okay, a couple thousand people gone. And then that's when it, like we called it the de, the de facto demolition started taking place in the Vixens, right? Because folks just started disappearing. Then in 1999 comes the plan for transformation, a $1.5 billion plan to remake public housing across the city and saw the demolition of, of thousands of homes. Uh, one of the promises to Cabrini Green residents in particular was that most of them would be able to move back into the new mixed income housing that was replacing the high rises. But Natalie, how many people were able to ultimately come back as new developments were being put up? In general, the number when I crunched them in 2017, and I don't think that there's a, a huge difference, just 8% of public housing residents have been able to come back to mixed income. One thing that a lot of residents were fighting for and advocates was one-for-one one replacement. So you build these new communities, let's say there were 800 units at a location, bring back 800 public housing units, not 800 units in total making those mixed income. So the idea of mixed income is to have market rate housing, affordable housing, and public housing. You know, a lot of the people in CHA have a lot of challenges, Made some with substance abuse, some with employment, maybe, you know, paying back bills. And CHA, especially, I mean, they, they have corrected over the years to looking more holistically in building communities that have more than just housing and realize that residents need more than just housing and giving them services to go along. But especially in those early days, that that isn't what was happening. So the, the demonization that we saw of public housing has now really transferred to Section 8. So even in mixed-income communities, anytime something bad happens, oh, it must have been a public housing resident. Um, or if there's something in a neighborhood, because um, there has been destabilization in neighborhoods um, because of the plan for transformation, it automatically goes well. Those are, you know, project people who are who are coming in, and there have been some class clashes. People in public housing didn't have backyards, so they would be in the concrete in the front, but most. People who lived in public housing in Chicago who were affected by the plan for transformation went to a Section 8 voucher on the south and west sides in racially and economically segregated communities, which was the opposite of the intent expressed by officials for the plan for transformation. Wanting to improve the lives um, of the people who were living in these uh, housing units, uh, that was important. You know, it, it goes without saying that these were n not livable conditions. 
but the plan for transformation, and I love that the BGA and, and the work that WBEZ has done with them, um, is, is just saying it straight up. This was at the heart of land grab because Cabrini was in the smack, uh, you know, smack in the middle of some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. You know, who really benefited from developing some of the land around Cabrini since obviously so many of the people who actually called it home lost out? So the developers, you know, there there were stories going back even to the early 2000s that were showing the sales around. And and it's not just the developers, a neighborhood, you know, once that changed, it has spilled over beyond the Cabrini footprint. So you drive around Division, Chicago, west of the river, you can see for yourself, I mean, Groupon is headquarters are right next to the Cabrini Row Houses. To our north of Cabrini Green, we have the fabulous and marvelous expensive Lincoln Park. To the west of Cabrini Green, we have a diverse Latino and Black community known as Humble Park, right? To the east of us, we have the affluent Gold Coast. And to the south of us, we have the beautiful downtown. Like, we felt like you got, you got this great population of Black people in the middle of all this abundance of resources, transportation, healthcare, jobs, everything, right? It was that skyline, Jacoby. My mom and them used to always say that, man. They want this skyline. More than 20 years after it was introduced, what are the lasting impacts of, of Daly's plan for transformation, which, which some people call the plan for devastation? And I was talking to J.R. Fleming about this one time, and sometimes it feels like a ghost town. And I, I teach at Medill graduate students, and you know, the more time goes on, they have no memory of Cabrini, even if they are, are from here. You know, there's something that's vanished from Chicago. Yeah, I just, I think about ghosts. The, the ghost of Cabrini and where families went. How some got to come back, but all these new amenities and most of the people weren't able to experience it. It's hard to look at Jacoby. And when you over there and you live through that, it almost feels like it's surreal, bro. Like, man, they really tore down all these buildings, man. Like, I never thought the day I dreamed of that happened, right, growing up. Like, they just took our community, bro. Well, JR, thank you so much. CityCast Chicago is, is grateful every time you, you choose to stop by. Thanks for having me, Jacob. You guys take care. Appreciate CityCast. Natalie Moore, I appreciate you joining us on CityCast Chicago. I look forward to coming back. You like to live in one of the new ones? Apartments, the new new buildings that they're building. Gonna be about two stories, three at the most. No, you couldn't even see nothing. Can't see nothing? Now you be down too low, you won't be up high enough, that's what you mean? It's fine, it's fine when you just wake up in the morning and you look out the window mm -hmm. and you can see a lot that's Seem like you could just see the whole world.
For the Better Government Association's investigation, a history of broken promises, the CHA said they've delivered more than 3,000 mixed homes near Cabrini and that more than 500 families chose to return to a public housing or mixed income community in the Cabrini area. And they said they're still building. This Saturday, join us in the Better Government Association for a discussion about their investigation written by Alejandro Cancino. It's a virtual convo with a great panel, including Chicago's favorite historian, Sherman Della Thomas, and Cabrini resident, Carol Steele. Register for the event in our show notes. Also, some of the voices you heard in this interview were from the documentary Voices of Cabrini by Ronit Bezalel. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. City Council approved one of the city's largest ever police misconduct settlements, paying $14 million to Kevin Bailey and Corey Batchelor. Combined, they spent nearly 50 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. Their conviction was tied to disgraced former police commander John Burge. The Bears are closer to hiring a head coach now that they've hired Ryan Poles as the new general manager. And some good news to get you through. Tomorrow is Girls Day of Play. With CPS closed for the day, there will be events at 18 parks for girls aged 6 to 15. There'll be swimming, lacrosse, basketball, and dance. Sign up at the link in our show notes. For more Chicago news, subscribe to our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Do, 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 and we're gonna take it to the top, yeah. All right, here we go.